Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And if you're wondering why I'm wearing a tuxedo this week, it is because this is my 100th episode. Yes, I've been doing this podcast now for two years and have 100 episodes under my belt. And hopefully there will be several hundreds more. But looking back over the last two years, let's see, I've done... Well, lots of interviews with writers and actors and producers, voiceover talent, sportscasters, film directors, historians, TV hosts, and people who I just know. I did a contest. I gave away free MASH scripts to anyone who wanted one. Uh, I have done commentary tracks. I have also shared with you uh, pilots and plays that I've had performed. And uh, I did my first and very last stand-up routine. You can find all of these things in the archives. Let's see, I have also done award show reviews, travelogues, a lot of tips for writers and directors, people trying to get into the industry, war stories of my checkered career, also stories from my personal past. I have answered listener questions. I have played samples of my play-by-play talk show and DJ radio shows. All of that in two years, and I hope to keep doing more of it. So what am I going to do for my 100th episode? Well, I thought I would do kind of the best of Hollywood and Levine, in a sense. I'm going to replay three stories, and these are, A, my favorite stories, and B, these are the stories that most people have said they enjoy the most. There's going to be one from my TV life, my radio life, and my baseball life. And if you haven't heard these stories, uh, check them out because they're really fun. Lots of laughs in store for you. Okay, the first one is going to be my story. I told this like very early, I think like episode five. And it was my first night and only night as a disc jockey on WLS radio and kind of a prank that I pulled on the disc jockey before me. The second thing I'm going to play for you is uh, (laughs) sort of a survey of the insane writer's assistants that my partner David Isaacs and I 
have hired down through our career. You won't believe some of these people. And finally, my favorite home run call. It is a home run call that I made in 1988, and people in baseball are still coming up to me talking about it. It is that memorable. So there you go, the 100th episode with the best of Hollywood and Levine, and it starts right now. W-A-L-S. Okay, this is one of those me in radio stories. I kind of come off like a jerk in it, but still it's pretty funny and certainly worth sharing with you. WLS was a major monster top 40 AM radio station in the 60s and 70s. It came out of Chicago, and anybody who grew up in the Midwest knows all about the big 89 WLS. But the great thing about that station, by being clear channel... It meant that there were no other stations at night that had the 890 frequency. So when the ionosphere rose and you could pick up signals from distant cities, you could literally get WLS out of Chicago from coast to coast. I grew up in Los Angeles, and especially during the winter, I took my little red plastic radio and I would tune very carefully to 89 and there would be Dick Biondi playing the hits for the folks in the Windy City. It was very magical. I mean, the idea that some guy could be in a little studio in Chicago talking into an inverted tomato soup can and 2,000 miles away, I'm able to actually hear it I mean, that was magical. Of course, today, you can listen to this podcast anywhere in the world. But back then, man, to be on a blowtorch radio station that had that great a signal was unbelievable. Like I said, it was truly magical. Anyway, we go to 1988. And at the time, I'm working on Cheers. And my father, who was an executive in radio, as luck would have it, became the general manager of WLS in Chicago. So uh, he calls me early in the year and says, you know, we'd love for you to bring the family to Chicago for Thanksgiving. And I said, we'd be happy to do it, but only under one condition. Only if you let me do one all-night show on WLS. I always wanted to be on the Big 89. And he said, yeah, sure. He also was the general manager of their FM station, which at the time was doing really well. And he said, hey, I can put you on in the afternoons on the FM station if you want. I said, no, no, you don't get it. I want to be on in the middle of the night, coast to coast, on WLS. And so he said, sure, okay, fine. So we show up at Thanksgiving, and he decides to put me on the air that Wednesday night before from midnight to six. And so I'm very excited and uh, I go down to the station at night and to set things up for you. WLS used to be a station where you had engineers that played all of the records, all of the jingles, all of the commercials, et cetera, et cetera. And the disc jockey 
only turned his microphone on and off. Yeah, those were the days of unions. Well, by 1988, the disc jockey was then running his own board, playing all of his own commercials, all of his own jingles, etc., etc. And so I would be running my own board, which was fine. I've run tons of boards. And as you know, I had been a disc jockey for years. You heard the uh, embarrassing Beaver Cleaver air checks. So the board itself was very standard. You had slide pots, one for the microphone, one to bring up the network news, one to bring up the phone if you wanted to talk to anybody on the phone, and the others for the cartridge machines to play all of the music, jingles, promos, commercials, etc. By 1988, you didn't play records, you played cartridges, and uh, they were very easy. You just... Uh, put them in the slot and hit the button, and away they went. So that was the scene, and I show up at the radio station at like 11.30 to go on the air at midnight, and I see that the disc jockey has a memo that my father had written. And my father had said this, Attention, my son Ken will be filling in doing the all-night show tonight. He didn't say Ken Levine will be filling in doing the all-night show. He said, my son. And, of course, the disc jockey on duty, and I do not remember his name. I feel bad. I owe this guy a dinner. Uh, You'll see why when I tell you the rest of the story. But um, he saw that. And he obviously figured, okay, this is some sort of vanity thing where the uh, general manager is going to let his kid go on a 50,000-watt radio station, uh, gets to play records for the first time in his life. So um, so I show up, and he says, uh, hmm, listen, um, i got to leave at like 1215 and there's no engineer here. We're going to have to get somebody in here to uh, run the board for you. And I said, because uh, I, I could figure out quickly what was going on. And I decided to have a little fun with this guy. So I said, oh, no, no, no. Dad said that I could run my own board, that I could do it all myself. And he goes, okay. And I said, so how do we do it? What do we do? And he says, well, okay, this is the control board. And I said, uh, where are the records? And he goes, no, no, we don't play records anymore. See, all of the songs are on cartridges. And I'm like, cartridges? What are those? You know, and he's like already starting to sweat. He goes like these. And he holds up one of the cartridges, which looks like a pack of cigarettes. And again, I knew full well what cartridges were. And he says, uh, okay, this is the cartridge. And I say, great, where do they go? And he says, uh, in these slots. See, we have eight cart machines. I mean, that was state-of-the-art back in 1988. Today, everything is on computer, and, and this is all completely obsolete. So I said, oh, okay, well, give me a second here. Let me take some notes. And by now, this poor guy is just dying. Again, WLS, 50,000-watt powerhouse, and... This imbecile is going on the air unsupervised. So I go, okay, got it. Carts go in those slots. And he says, all right, now on the board, here are numbers corresponding to the cart machines. So if you put something in cart five, it's number five on the board. 
the number five on the board. Got it. He's like biting his lip and he goes, okay, you turn the volume up and down with these slide pots. And I go, volume, that's what, how loud it is? He's just ready to kill my dad by this point. He goes, yes, that's how loud it is. You press the red button and it goes on the air. Simple enough. Where's the microphone button? That would be pot one. Okay, well, how do I hear the songs? He goes, well, you have these headphones. That's what they're for. No disrespect, but um, have you ever seen a radio show before? And I was very indignant. I said, of course I have. It's just that Dr. Johnny Fever didn't wear headphones when he heard the music. And this is just one of the many inaccuracies of WKRP in Cincinnati, by the way. And he said, yeah, well, you're going to need headphones. Okay, so by now, it was pretty much time for him to sign off and go to the five minutes of ABC Contemporary News at 55. So he does that, and he goes to the news, and he has me sit down. And I go, "Uh, okay, all right. Now, at the top of the hour, what do I do? And he says, you play a jingle. And I go, great. Which one? And he says, the one that says top of the hour. Oh, okay. He says, what's your first record? And I go, ah, uh, you mean cartridge, don't you? Cartridge. He says, yes, yes, what's your first cartridge? So I selected some song and uh, very, very tentatively uh, put it into the machine. And he says, okay, now what you have to do when the news is over, you pot down the news here, you play the jingle here, and when it sings WLS Chicago, right after you hear Chicago, you play the rec- the, the cartridge. Okay, wait, I got to write this down. Ooh, she's news, jingle, Chicago, cartridge. Uh, when do I turn my microphone on? He says, well, once the song starts. I said, well, and then I'm uh, pushing two buttons at once. And he goes, well, look, you can turn it on earlier or later, whatever you want. Okay, let me give this a try. So sweat is pouring off this poor guy. So the news ends. I turn on my microphone. I look at my notes. I pot down the news, fire the jingle, blast the song. And when I hear the song, I go... It is 12 o'clock in Chicago. My name is Ken Levine. Yes, I use my real name for this one. I have been on the radio in Bakersfield, San Bernardino, Detroit, New York, San Francisco, San Diego, and Los Angeles, but never at the same time. This is WLS. And I talked right up to the vocal and turned the microphone off. And he goes, you asshole, you've done this before. I said, yes, of course. Do you think my father is going to put someone on a 50? 50,000 watt radio station who's never been on the radio before well uh, again for the life of me I don't know the name of that disc jockey and this is a worldwide public apology and by the way being on WLS in the middle of the night was as totally super cool 
as I thought it would be. It was amazing. I was taking calls from people in Iowa and Florida and Georgia and California. It was just an amazing experience being on the big 89. That was my one and only time on WLS. My partner David Isaacs and I have been around so long that writer's assistants were known as secretaries back when we began our career. That, of course, was during the Pleistocene era. But along the way, we have had a couple of very colorful secretaries, and I thought now I would share some of those people with you, and the names have been changed to protect the insane. First of all, when we were at MASH, we had Ellen. Now, understand that I am not complaining about Ellen. Ellen was very attractive. She was in her early 40s, and one day she came in and she said, uh, Hey, guys, would you take a look at these? Apparently, Playboy magazine was going to do a pictorial on women over 40. So she came in with seven or eight nude photos of herself. And they were very lovely photos, full frontal, everything. And of course, you know, what do you say when your writer's assistant brings you nude photos of herself? You're going, yeah, the lighting is very nice, very good composition. Uh, Whoever took these photos has a very good eye. By the way, who did take these photos? And she said, oh, my son. Like, wow, what? Yeah, she had a teenage son who took nude photos of her. She didn't get the assignment, by the way. But like I said, not complaining about Ellen. We liked her a lot. Then there was Charlotte. Now, here's another thing you have to understand. This was at MASH, and we were at 20th Century Fox. And the woman who hired all of the secretaries, because your secretary had to come out of their office pool, it was a union situation. Well, the woman who hired all of these other women was fucking batshit crazy. So the women that she would hire were also loons. There was Charlotte. Charlotte came in and she had a nice resume and she said she was very experienced. And the way David and I wrote was that we would be in the room with the writer's assistant. We would dictate the script. At the time, this was before computers, and they would come with a steno pad and they would take it all down in shorthand. And Charlotte said, oh, I'm very well experienced in that. So he said, okay. So he hired her. She seemed very nice. The first day she comes into us at about 10 o'clock in the morning and she says, hey, guys, uh, would you mind if I took an early lunch today? We thought that was kind of strange, her first day and all. We said, uh, I, I guess, sure. Is there some place that you have to be? She says, yes, I'm having an abortion. And we were like, wow, what? Charlotte, take the whole rest of the day off. Oh, no, no, no. I'll be back, girly. Don't worry about it. And sure enough, she leaves. And a few hours later, with a little spring in her step, she's back. So, yeah, okay. Then it was time to actually work. And we called her in. And I remember we were writing an OR scene. And an operating room scene is the easiest to write for the writer's assistant because usually it's short staccato dialogue. Hawkeye, clamp, nurse, clamp, nurse hands Hawkeye the clamp, Hawkeye, suction, nurse, suction. That's it. So we pitch out this scene, and she goes off, and she types it up, and then she comes back a few minutes later, and she says, here, take a look at it. It was insane. She had dialogue in the action lines. She had action lines for dialogue. Literally, it was insane, 
And so we had to fire her. What is it like when having an abortion is not the worst thing that happens to you during a day? Anyway, so much for Charlotte. Then there was Caitlin. Now, Caitlin, (laughs) oh my God. One day, our showrunner, executive producer, Britt Metcalf, came into the office, closed the door behind him and said, your secretary is standing on her fucking head. Sure enough, we peeked out into the office and there was Caitlin standing on her head. Later that day, we asked her why she did that and she said, oh, I always do that. Well, what a perfect first impression that makes on anyone entering your outer office. Well, she would come in while we were dictating scripts and of course, there are those moments when we are searching for a line where we're very quiet and we would just be sitting there, David and I, looking up at the ceiling and trying to come up with a joke. And all of a sudden, Caitlin would just start chortling. And I turned to her once. I said, Caitlin, what are you laughing at? And she says, oh, I'm just picturing the line you guys are going to come up with and how funny it's going to be. I said, well, do you happen to picture exactly what the line is? Maybe save us some time. (laughs) No, she just thought that was hilarious. Well, she lasted about six months because one day she went to lunch at the studio commissary and it was a very windy, blustery day. She was the only one who sat out in the outdoor patio. I mean, I'm telling you, cows were flying by. It was like one of those days and a tree branch broke off and hit her and clonked her in the head, and that was it. And then she sued the studio because they wouldn't pay for her holistic medicine. Now, as opposed to Caitlin, there was Lynn. Lynn was kind of a party girl. She stayed out late at night. In fact, she and some of the other secretaries around the lot kind of had a bet to see who was going to sleep with the president of the movie division first. I think Lynn came in second or third, or maybe second and third. Anyway, she would come in every morning and she would be very tired after her long night. And we would call her into the room when we were going to do a script. And she would have her head on the table and she would like be napping while we were writing a script. So when there would be one of those pauses where David and I were trying to come up with a line, Lynn had her head on the table And then I would pitch a line and David would pitch a line. We go, okay, let's settle on that. Okay, uh, Lynn, let's put that down. Lynn. Lynn, Lynn, huh, what? Uh, Okay, she'd lift her head. We'd have to pitch the line. She'd write the line down in the steno pad and then drop her head back down to the table. She didn't last very long either. Eventually, we moved on to Paramount where we had Claudia. Claudia didn't seem to want to be there from day one. We were taking a final pass at the Big Wave Dave's pilot, and we wanted to send it on to our director, Andy Ackerman, that night. So we said to Claudia, okay, type it up, and we'll take a look at it. We want to messenger it out to Andy. And she said, well, can we do this in the morning? I said, well, no, we really want to get it out to him tonight. She goes, well, it's 5.30. I said, yeah, so what? It's 5.30. It's not 2.30 in the morning. It's 5.30. And she glared at me and went back into her office and typed it up, came back in, and I made a couple of quick corrections, handed it back to her, said, okay, make these corrections. Let me take a look at it again. She goes, again? I have to do this again? 
it's now quarter of six. I said, yes, yes, Claudia, you have to do it again. I want to get this out tonight. And then she puts her hands on her hips and she tilts her head and she says, you know, up until now, I've been very patient with you guys. And David and I were like, just gobsmacked, like, what the fuck? Yes, I've been very patient with you guys. And I said, well, you're going to have to be patient a little bit longer because I want the changes now. And she glared at me and went off and made the changes. And a few days later, she was looking for another job. And all of this brings me to Sally. Ah, sweet Sally. Well, this is when we had a development deal at Paramount. We had our own production company, and the mandate was to sell pilots and get shows on the air. Well, Sally had a very modest apartment in Brentwood, which is on the west side of Los Angeles. It's about a half-hour drive to Paramount, which is in Hollywood. And one morning, her pet parakeet got out of its cage, flew out the window, and then perched on a nearby tree. So when this happens, what do you do? You call the fire department, right? Yes, that's what you would do or... I would do, or maybe any rational person, Ah, but not Sally. She called the Paramount Special Effects Department and ordered that two stuntmen come out to her apartment and retrieve the bird. Okay, so I'm sleeping, and all of a sudden, I get awoken by a phone call, and it's from the Special Effects Department at Paramount Pictures. And I'm like, what? What? And they wanted my okay on this because it would be charged against our development deal. So I said, okay, well, uh, two special effects guys? What? <laughs> how, how much is this going to cost our production deal? They said, $20,000. I said, fuck no. I said, cancel it, for God's sakes, and thank you so much for calling. Well, my phone rang about two minutes later, and it, of course, was Sally, and she was just frantic because Paramount had given her the bad news. Oh, my God, what was she going to do? Anyway, this was essentially our conversation, and it is almost verbatim. I said, did you call the fire department? And she said, well, why would I call the fire department? I said, to get your bird down. She says, there's no fire. I said, well, yeah, they also rescue animals. You've never heard of firemen raising ladders up against trees and saving cats? Well, this is a bird. So what? Do they have nets? How how would I know? Well, how how do they capture him? Uh, I, I don't know. They'll send up the Dalmatian. He'll put it in his mouth. I don't know. And then she says, well, maybe I can pay some kids to climb the tree. I said, just call the fucking fire department. And she says, can I tell them I'm a producer? I said, no, but I want them to come here first. And I was a little taken aback by that. I said, you think they go out on calls based on your status in Hollywood? Well, maybe they're actors. Oh, So if they think you're a producer, they'll recite a monologue from King Lear as they shimmy up the ladder. Well, how else am I going to get them to come out here first? I said, well, tell them the bird was the Maltese falcon. The good news is she got the bird down. We called the fire department of all crazy things. And I'm just glad that she didn't call for the corporate jet to fly her the 10 miles from Brentwood to Paramount. 
That was Sally. I should mention, in all fairness, we also had some wonderful writer's assistants. We had Sue Herring, who unfortunately passed away very young. Lana Lewis. Great thing about Lana Lewis was that we would be working on a line and we would want to maybe do some treacly moment for whatever reason we weren't thinking straight. And Lana would just yell out, Guys, America wants to laugh. America wants to laugh. We go, okay, screw it. Let's come up with a joke. Uh, There you go. We also had a wonderful writer's assistant at 20th Century Fox named Ruth, Ruth Horn. And we hired her freelance to help out when we were rewriting Jewel of the Nile. That was the Romancing the Stone sequel. David and I did the rewrite for Michael Douglas. And it was the first time that David and I had ever done an action film. And so we were going slowly, I guess is a nice way of putting it. Too slow for Ruth. And I remember there was one scene in particular when the Michael Douglas character, Jack, apparently like climbs up a tower and he's trying to save Kathleen Turner, who is imprisoned. And there were a couple of guards. And we were saying, well, does he sneak around the guards? Uh, does he just go past the guards? Does he wait for the guard to make his round? Does he wait for the guard to go to sleep? What does he do? And we're tossing around all of these options back and forth. And finally, Ruth just takes the pen, writes in the steno pad, Jack knocks out the guard and enters the cell. And we go, okay, that's fine. (laughs) Okay, we'll do that. So we've had a, a number of very good ones, and the good ones last years and years. The bad ones only last a, a few months. Although, again, we would have kept Ellen forever. Anyway, those are some of the crazy secretaries that we have had, and I'm sure that anybody who has been in the business for any length of time would have an equal number of stories. <laughs> Whenever people find out that I've been a baseball announcer, invariably they will ask, well, what's your home run call? Well, I don't really have a signature home run call, but I do have a very memorable home run call that I used once and once only back in 1988. It was my first year broadcasting baseball, and along with Dan Horde, who is now the voice of the Cincinnati Bengals and the Cincinnati Bearcats, uh, I was calling games for the Syracuse Chiefs in the International League. Unfortunately, we were on a terrible radio station. I don't even remember the call letters, but we were like at 1590 on the dial, class 4, 250 watts. And at night, when we would go to our nighttime pattern, our coverage area was so bad that if you were sitting in the stadium and you were in the grandstands on the third base side, uh, we were gone. Uh, Okay, so after 8.15, I would have to say good night to everybody who is listening to the station down the third base line. We'd go to uh, nighttime power and they were gone. And people, of course, would complain about how terrible the the signal was. And to try to save face, I said that, uh, well, we're really just the flagship station of the worldwide Syracuse Chiefs radio network, that there are stations all over the world that listen to and pick up 
the Syracuse Chiefs radio network. I said in the Imperial Palace in Bhutan, we're huge. They love us in Norway. They love us in Greenland. Uh, We are just a worldwide sensation. Unfortunately, here in Syracuse, it's very difficult to hear. And uh, I decided to start doing this on the air for fun. What the heck? I would pause for station identification on the worldwide Syracuse Chiefs radio network. Now, the irony, of course, is today with the Internet, it pretty much is the worldwide Syracuse Chiefs radio network because you can find it online and you can be in the Imperial Palace of Bhutan listening to Syracuse Chiefs baseball. I don't know why you would want to, but you could. So anyway, um, I would do this night after night. And we had a player, he's a real sweet kid named Norm Tanucci. He was our third baseman. And uh, like I said, great kid, really a slick fielder. But he was struggling at the plate. He was going over June. And every night it was just strikeout, 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 ground out, strikeout. And it was really tough. And you hated the fact that every time he came to the plate, what are you going to say about this guy? So, you know, you'd have to go, well, he's uh, one for 37, uh, batting 011 for the month of July. You know, it was really tough. So I decided instead of that to create this whole scenario whereby Norm Tanucci was a folk hero in Borneo. And I made up this whole story on the air about how his father had parachuted in behind enemy lines during World War II and saved the country. And as a result of that, 98% of the male babies born are named Norm and 93% of the female babies born in Borneo are named Norm. And the uh, currency is in Tanuchas. And uh, I would talk about what a great folk hero Norm Tanucci was. And he went along with this. Uh, he was a real good sport. In fact, I even recorded him a couple of times saying, uh, hi to everybody in Borneo. Uh, this is Norm Tanucci. Thanks so much for listening, etc." So I was able to talk about that instead of the fact that he had struck out eight times in the last nine at bats. So we are now in Oklahoma City, And we had flown all day, and everybody was really kind of punchy and had no sleep. And when that happens, you either are shut out or you win 18 to nothing. So this night, we were doing pretty well. And Norm Tanucci got up, and I wasn't broadcasting this inning. My partner, Dan Horde, was. And Norm Tanucci got up and tripled. And so when he came up again, and I was broadcasting that inning... I mentioned how everybody in Borneo was very excited because their boy tripled. And then the first pitch, he just crushes. And I mean, he just hit a moonshot to left field. And my home run call was this. There's a high drive to deep left field. Steve Camp back to the track, to the wall. No school tomorrow in Borneo. Uh, That was my home run call. And uh, to this day, when I see executives from the Toronto Blue Jays, because we were the Blue Jays AAA affiliate, they still remember it. I'm still known for no school tomorrow in Borneo. 
So that is my favorite home run call. Okay, that will do it for the 100th episode of Hollywood and Levine. Like I said, hopefully there will be a lot more. I'd love to hear from you. My email address is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ken Levine. You can also follow me on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Our thanks over the last two years to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, to John Wolfert, to Randy Thomas, and most of all, you. Thank you so much for listening and subscribing over the last couple of years. It's really been fun hearing from you, and hopefully bigger and better shows are to come. So thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next week on episode 101. Bye-bye.